You are listening to the Meaningful Life with George Haas podcast. For more information, please visit metagroup.org. That's M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P dot O-R-G. So welcome, everybody. This is a day-long version of Meditation Interventions for the Addiction Process. I teach this class in a lot of different formats. I do a a day-long, I do a six-week class, I do a 30-class inpatient uh, version in treatment facilities. I do a uh, nine-month intensive in 18 classes. Um, I wanted to uh, then suggest to you that the day-long version of the class is going to be a lot of information with some meditation instruction, but I don't actually expect you to uh, be able to uh, actually do the things that I'm suggesting that would be helpful to you. I just want you to have a sense of what it is that I think is necessary if you want to maintain uh, long-term abstinence or harm reduction with the various strategies that you develop. I tend to talk about addiction as an attachment disorder, so a lot of the, uh, the focus on this is around uh, understanding the root causes of developing addiction strategies and then working to shift them. In addiction, uh, as I think Mark Twain said the best, uh, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it hundreds of times. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't the, the stopping that actually is the hard part. It's the, the staying stopped or the or Um, being engaged in harm reduction. In some sense, harm reduction is harder than um, uh, abstinence. Abstinence, you can have a perfect score. In harm reduction, there's always some engagement. Um, For instance, if food was one of the the components of your addictive strategy, how long could you go on an abstinence-only program, right? Maybe eight weeks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Before you're dead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you have to eat. <clears throat> How can you uh, develop a way of eating that's actually helpful to you? Um, you know, some people have sex addiction. Abstinence only is one one version of uh, repairing that. But is that going to lead to a meaningful life to just abstain altogether from sexual relationships? Um, a lot of people have addiction processes around money, uh, either making too much money in, in the sense that too much uh, of your energy and resources is put into the task of making money so that it, it harms your, the other aspects of life that might be fulfilling, not making enough money, overspending or underspending. So how do you come into balance with that? <clears throat> I thought I would start with a poem. I like to teach with poetry. A perfect one was traveling through the desert. He was stretched out around the fire one night and said to one of his close ones, There is a slave loose not far from us. He escaped today from a cruel master. His hands are still bound behind his back. His feet are also shackled. I can see him right now praying for God's help. Go to him, ride to that distant hill. 
About a hundred feet up and to the right, you will find a small cave. He is there. Do not say a single word to him. Bring the man to me. God requests that I personally untie his body and press my lips to his wounds. Uh, the disciple mounts his horse and within two hours arrives at the small cave. The slave sees him coming and the slave looks frightened. The disciple on orders not to speak gestures toward the sky pantomiming. God saw you in a prayer. Come, please come with me. Uh, a great teacher has used his heart's divine eye to know your whereabouts. The slave cannot believe this story and begins to shout at the man and tries to run but trips from his bindings. The disciple becomes forced to sub subdue him. Think of this picture as they now travel. The million candles in the sky are lit up and singing. Every particle of existence is a dancing altar that some mysterious force worships. The earth is a church floor whereupon in the middle of a glorious night walks a slave weeping tied to a rope behind a horse with a speechless rider taking him toward the unknown. Several times with all his might the slave tries to break free feeling he is being returned to captivity. The rider stops, dismounts, brings his eyes near the prisoner's eyes. A deep kindness there communicates an unbelievable hope. The rider motions soon Soon you will be free. Tears roll down the rider's cheeks in happiness for this man. Anger, all this fighting and tormenting want. Sweetheart, God has seen you and sent a close one. Sweetheart, God has seen your heart in prayer and sent Hafiz. Hafiz is the author of the poem. He's a contemporary of Rumi, if you know your poetry. Um, I am a, a Vipassana teacher, so I could explain my intention in reading this poem. Do you need me to do that, or do you, do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> Addiction is a kind of binding. Um, the idea of actually giving it up and moving toward authentic, intimate relationships is the, the process that's so terrifying. And often we resist in doing this because uh, not the idea of relationships uh, are unbearable, but our, actually, our actual experience of them. So our early conditioning tends to really reinforce this. Um, when you're three years old, your brain is 80% formed in the way that it will be in your adult life when you're three years old. When you're 10 months old, they can take you through a, 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 an examination called the strange situation and determine your attachment strategy when you're 10 months old. If you don't do anything to change your attachment strategy or some life event doesn't intervene, your attachment strategy will hold for your whole life. So by the time you're 10 months old, you form a way of thinking of yourself, you form a way of thinking about other people in the world, and if you don't directly address it in some way, or life doesn't intervene, you will use those views your whole life. In Buddhism we call this right view, or 
I like to say, wrong view. <laughs> right view. Um, I would like to also read an email to you. I got it yesterday. This is from somebody who took the class. Uh, the, the, at that time, it was a 10-month version. Um, this would have been the first round of a class, so in, in uh, 2014. In 2013-14. George, hope, all is, hope you are well. Just wanted to thank you again for helping me so much. My life is truly mine now. I have spent these years focusing on my recovery, my attachment issues, and meditating. Right now the practice is beginning to pay dividends. I owe so much to you for you did set me straight. No bullshit so hard to find anywhere. Say, have you ever published anything about gaining security out of insecurity as an adult? I remember you told me that, uh, you were the person you were looking for 25 years ago. I'm starting to feel that way about myself. Mm. Kind regards and true gratitude to you and your dharma. I, I also want to point out to you that um, I'm like a sign point post, uh, signpost pointing, but you have to do all the work. I don't, I don't do any of it, and actually there's no way for me to do any of it. You really have to engage this and undertake this practice. One of the things about addiction in particular is it's procedural, and so it's deeply embedded in the subconscious. You have this little window on what you're going to do, but you may all have had the experience of uh, using when you didn't want to, or surprising yourself by coming to having used. I remember in my using that I would come to out of a blackout, not know where I was. It would be dusky or dawny, not knowing which way the sun was going to go. Um, not even remembering how what started the run, what day it was even. I could go three or four days in, a, in such a um, drugged out haze that I wouldn't really register any of it. Um, we learn to do these things and we make decisions to do them and uh, we're now going to have to learn something else and it's going to take a lot of energy to do that. Um, I do find that the practice of meditation is extraordinarily useful in this but you have to have a deep practice, sort of an industrial strength practice, a light practice isn't going to do much. The, um, the curriculum for uh, meditation interventions is uh, based in Theravada Buddhism, and so there's an underpinning of Buddhist meditation practice. All of the, the remedies that I suggest are meditation-based. Do you find that you have a voice inside your head that narrates your life as you go along? And would you characterize that voice as always kind and loving? <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we need to begin. We need to train the mind to be always kind and loving. Always kind and loving. You may think that that voice is resilient and maybe you even think the voice is correct. I don't know. Um, mostly what I want you to understand is that it's conditioned, that you are conditioned into that voice. It's a 
way of emotionally regulating yourself and you learned it from your caregivers because it's the same voice that they use. So we could turn our attention to the caregiver and blame them for these crappy tools that they, they gave us. And uh, if you confront them and say, why did you uh, care for me the way that you did? They would probably tell you that they cared for you in the same way that their beloved mother and father cared for them. And that that's what they thought was the thing to do. Some of them may have made this staunch vow not to raise their children the way that they were raised. I mean, ardent vow, which is a cognitive function. Um, what do you know about raising children if you've had them to raise? It's extraordinarily stressful. <laughs> what do you know about the relationship between your cognitive ability and stress? <laughs> they're inversely proportioned. The higher the level of stress, the lower your cognitive function. So even with this ardent desire to do something different than what you experienced, if it's too stressful, it won't be available to you in that moment. What will be available to you in that moment is the procedural memory, which is all unconscious. And most of the time in parenting, particularly if it's the first or second child, you don't know what to do because you've never been a parent in that particular situation again. And so what the mind does is go into deep memory and pull out the circumstance that closely matches it. Most of the time, though, in that relationship, you're the kid. And then you see how your, your parent responded to you and you flip it and respond in that way because that's, where, that's what's held in procedural memory. That's what you know to do and so you repeat the thing that happened to you because that's the nature of the human experience. And so you find that this conditioning in family runs transgenerationally. It's transgenerationally stable. That the skill set for being in the world that your parent teaches you and that you learn is the same skill set that their parents taught to them, which is the same skill set that uh, their parents taught to them. From an attachment perspective, they can predict to a 70% accuracy the attachment strategy of the great-granddaughter based on the attachment strategy of the great-grandmother. 70% in statistics is a huge number. They can predict to an 85% accuracy the attachment strategy of the child based on the attachment strategy of the mother before conception. So we're, we're infants, we come into the world without this skill set, we turn to our caregivers because without them we won't survive, and they instruct us how to be in the world, and we do our due diligence and take it up. We're, we're good students, we learn the family system, and do you know what? It's just what you need to survive in that, that family system. The difficulty comes when you want to go out into the world and you take with you this skill set you have and then you try to adjust it into the, the wider scheme of things and depending on your particular skill set it may be easy to mesh in there or it may not be. 
but these views that we form about ourselves, our capabilities, and the view we form about the world, they hold transgenerationally stable, these views. So that if you want to change them, you're going to have to push really hard. And you're going to have to do it for a long period of time. So the email I read, the reason I, I read it was not so that you would think I'm a great teacher, but so that you'd begin to understand that three years of practice might be uh, a good interval to consider in terms of undertaking to try and change these things. There's a couple of ways to change them. You can learn the skill set of secure attachment. I know I haven't defined any of this. And you can begin to use that skill set in your relationships and you can move your relationships into much more secure relationships without having to do the deep work of uprooting the uh, conditioning. And if you do that, that happens pretty quickly and you have much more secure relationships and then they're, they're there to support you as you do the deep work. So it's a great idea to do that. To do the deep work, then you have to go into this unconscious. This is where meditation comes in and is actually probably the best choice for all of this because it really does get into the deep the root causes of this stuff. If you remember your Eightfold Path, the sixth is right effort. So understanding uh, when a, a skillful mind state has arisen and reinforcing it, understanding the root causes of a skillful mind state arising and reinforcing that, understanding when an unskillful mind state has arisen and stopping it, and then understanding what the root causes of the unskillful mind state arising and uproot them. In addition to the Theravada uh, Buddhism and the uh, attachment material from John Bowlby, the meditation interventions strategy uses the relapse prevention research that Alan Marlat did at the University of Washington. He came up with six main conduits to relapse that uh, are common among people who use addictive strategies and I've uh, sort of compressed them into four modules. The first module is called uh, craving uh, and urging and Hmm? Craving and urging. I'm going to say one more thing and then jump into craving and urging. We're going to break for lunch at um, one. We'll have some breaks and then we'll go from one to two thirty for lunch and then we'll have two to four, two thirty to four thirty in the afternoon. We're going to cover the first three modules in the morning, so it's going to be fast. Um, I like information, so you're going to have to indulge me. (laughs) (laughs) So craving and urge. Craving is the automatic thought of using. So something happens in the present moment and the mind thinks of using. maybe what needs to happen is to understand this mechanism a little bit better. We have an emotional response to the the conditions of the present moment. In fact, in Buddhism, uh, thought is auditory, visual thinking and emotion in the body. So 
in the West, we're, we're, we're sort of under the, the uh, oppression of Descartes, who divided reason from emotion. But in Buddhism, that's never been the, there's never been a division there. Every thought has an emotional piece to it, and so that the complete understanding of a thought is the auditory part, the visual thinking part, and the feeling state in the body. This is actually a, a much better model in, in say, mapping it onto neuroscience than this split between reason and emotion than the absurd notion that reason can slay emotion have you ever said to yourself I'm not going to use again (laughs) (laughs) I understand this and I'm not going to do it ever again (laughs) so we want to touch into and be aware of this emotional peace Something happens in the present moment. Uh, that is to say, from a Theravada view, there's an object that can be sensed. There's the capacity to sense it when they meet. A consciousness of that sensing experience arises, and awareness knows that that's what's happening. Awareness is the knowingness of the mind, totally neutral. When the object disconnects from the capacity to sense, the consciousness of that particular sensing experience ends, and awareness knows that. In meditation, uh, whereas this may sound mysterious, it will become perfectly obvious if you practice enough because you'll be able to see all of these stages unfolding. We are conditioned, so we have the sensing experience. It's then categorized as pleasant unpleasant or neutral, the sensing experience. Another way that I like to talk about it is urgent, doesn't really matter, pleasant if there's time. if you look at the brain time, brain time is in, measured in microseconds, so a millionth of a second. Uh, dangerous information, urgent information, is processed at 150,000 microseconds, about three-eighths of a second. Pleasant experience is processed, processed at 500,000 microseconds, so half a second urgent material always precedes everything else. So if you have a long queue of things and something's urgent, it goes to the head of the queue. So if something's dangerous or frightening or difficult, it always goes to the head of the queue. So you can get into these jags where you think that everything is negative. It's only that way because there isn't time or bandwidth for the positive to get in. So using these analogies and these measurements of bit rates, you know what a bit rate is, a discrete piece of information that can be processed in a discrete period of time. So the bit rate per second, say, of the body-mind, and all of you who know the answer, hold silent. And so it's about, according to a group of French neurosciences, 11 million bits per second is what the whole body-mind can take in. And what then is the bit rate of consciousness, the conscious mind? 16. So when I say to you that almost everything is unimportant in the body-mind schema of things, it's a reduction of 11 million bits to 16, one six bits. We don't initiate anything from the conscious mind, from our conscious experience. It serves only as a last uh, microsecond veto. Have you ever found yourself three words into a sentence that you know if you finish will be a complete disaster? 
<laughs> and have you been able to stop yourself? That's what the conscious experience is. It's like the printer. After all of the processing has been done, uh, it goes to the printer. Everything's already happened and it goes to the printer. So you can try and live your life from the 16 bits of veto and not address the underlying conditioning, but you'll find that you're constantly repeating the same thing over and over again and needing to repair it over and over again. One of the things that I have, think happens in, in uh, recovery is that you find yourself over and over again in the same situation and it becomes very discouraging, it becomes depressing. Not only do you find yourself in the same old circumstance, but there's no reward that you used to get from finding yourself in that circumstance, and it's, and it's painful. So we need to really begin to understand the deep conditioning that leads us to this, and then begin to look at the things that uh, need to change. Something happens in the present moment, there's a response to it, so the sensing experience happens, it's categorized as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then it comes into the mind. You can detect those things, but it, as it enters the mind, it enters with all of the conditioning to it. Um, do you have a sense that everyone's conditioning is different than yours? That nobody actually had the same experience that you had? And do you then take it the next step to understand that the thing that just happened doesn't mean the same thing to anyone else that it means to you? Or do you think that because that happened and you sensed it, that you know what happened and that everybody has the same experience of the thing that just happened? This is one of the delusions that needs to begin to change. Also, we need to shift from this idea that we actually know what's happening we don't actually know what's happening. We don't, as human beings, we're not designed to know what's happening. We're designed to know what it means to us. So you experience something, your conditioning is such that it means something to you that it doesn't mean to anyone else because of the nature of, of conditioning. So when you say to somebody, you did that, it's actually not possible for you to know that. Right? What you can say is, what you did meant this to me. That you can say with certainty. But you can't actually say to somebody, you did that. Because we don't perceive what people do, we perceive only what it means to us. And actually, the way that memory works is that after 10 or 12 minutes of staying in the short-term memory buffer, it's processed for long-term memory and all detail is stripped out. You cannot actually say with any accuracy what I actually said at the beginning of this talk. You can only make up the dialogue that represents what it meant to you. This is the nature of it. We don't remember what people say, we remember what, what they said meant to us. And we remember how they are, uh, how they present themselves, what that means to us. And then we recreate the dialogue in the moment that we're remembering it based on what they said meant to us and how they are means to us. So we just sort of make it up. <laughs> so 
when you come at somebody, if you can come at them from this point of view of this is what I remember it meant to me, you can actually make an accurate statement. This is what it meant to me. What, what happened meant this to me. Uh, and then you could take it a step further. What did it mean to you? So that you're actually engaging in this process of communication. Something happens in the present moment, it attaches meaning to us, and then uh, because there's an emotional component and the body-mind has to regulate emotion, are you aware that you have to regulate emotion? So some people are going to use a suppression method and not really have any conscious awareness of emotion. doesn't mean you're not regulating it, doesn't mean it doesn't affect everything you do, it just means that it's not included in the 16 bits that you get to experience. Some people are, are quickly activated and very slow to settle, and so the, the emotion is constantly at a high level of intensity. Some people, well, we have a bandwidth. All of us have a bandwidth of emotion that we can just be in. That's Something happens and the emotional component of the thought process falls in that range and the body-mind doesn't need to do anything. We can just hold that experience, it can come and go. When something happens and the emotional response is outside that, that ordinary bandwidth, that has to be regulated and we all have a strategy for emotional regulation, which is largely thinking. We think of something because it has an emotional component and we can think a thought that will generate an emotion that regulates the underlying emotion and this is really the craving and urging piece. Craving happens because the way that you're currently set up to regulate certain experiences by, is by using. So something happens, it causes an emotional response which exceeds your normal bandwidth and the mind then points you in the direction of the thing that you need to do to regulate that overwhelming emotional experience and if the way you're currently wired is to regulate that experience by using you'll think of using, that's craving. Um, as you're moving around the planet out in the world how often do you think of using? Another way to put that is if you've used for 15 or 20 years it's likely that almost every strategy you have for regulating has some kind of using attached to it, right? So you're going to be constantly thinking of using. It's very hard to change that in the short term. It takes a long time to uproot that. So the, the critical voice that you're thinking of using needs to be a, a changed to understand that it's, it's wetware up here, right? <laughs> You've grown it. You didn't come into the world thinking of using. <laughs> oh dear, I can't find my rattle. I'm going to shoot heroin. <laughs> <laughs> right? You learned how to do it. When I was a kid, I would steal money from my mother and I would go buy candy bars. That was my first big source of regulation. The stealing felt really good. I felt I was getting justice. And I would buy 20 candy bars. When I was a kid, they were a nickel. I would steal a dollar and I would buy 20 candy bars. 
and then I would eat them all at once. <laughs> <laughs> Melty Ways or Snickers? You know, I was a big Reese's peanut butter cup. Yes. You could buy a 20 peanut butter cups. They were individually wrapped back then for a for dollar. I'd go to the supermarket on Main Street and give them a dollar, and they would give me a whole box. <laughs> I liked Almond Joys, I liked Mars, they had these things called Bun Bars, I really liked those. <laughs> la la, la la. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I come from a, a hard drinking Irish family where my parents would often get so drunk that they couldn't make their own drinks. So they taught us all how. My dad would lock the liquor cabinet and then hold up the keys and say, they're in the drawer, and then close the drawer. Because <clears throat> they were also very sensitive to how people viewed them. So they wanted everybody to know that the liquor cabinet was locked, but they all wanted us to know where they were in case they needed us to make them another drink. <laughs> uh-huh. And you said uh, we're not born with a craving. Isn't it that a baby, when it feels uncomfortable, screams and then gets mom's breast? And isn't that kind of using? Um, well, I think that there's a lot of, uh, of um, studies that will disprove that, that conceptualization. Uh, in, uh, um, the one that's coming to mind, I can't remember the author of it, There was the wire monkey with the, with the nipple, and there was the wire monkey that was covered with terry cloth. And then they put the, the, the rhesus monkey in there, and the rhesus monkey would sit on the terry cloth thing, and then whenever they wanted uh, milk, they would run over, take a sip, and then run back. So the nurturing is actually the driver rather than the sustenance. <clears throat> there you are, you're born. Let's talk a little bit about that. You're born. What do you do? So when is the first actual gesture that you make for somebody to take care of you? They've actually studied this and there's a time on it. Cry. How long is it? And it's not crying. How they <laughs> smile. There's a reflexive smile in children, an instinctive smile in newborns. And it comes at about 42 minutes of life. Mm -hmm. So after you get through the whole big trauma of crawling out of the <laughs> birth canal, <laughs> uh, <laughs> holding on for dear life, uh, 42 minutes in, there's this reflexive smile. And it's tied to movement. The child will smile at anything that moves. <laughs> We all tend to personalize it. Oh, I'm looking at the baby, they look at me, I move, they smile, they, they see me, they know me, they love me. Uh, this is not the, not the case at all. Children don't actually have any preference for who takes care of them until between five and eight months old. The only person who has a, an advantage with a child is the birth mother because the, the child can recognize the sound of that voice because they've heard it. Every, everyone else is on neutral ground. Um, so, 42 minutes in, you smile, nobody comes, you call out to the world, just a general plea, here I am, I need help. And then you begin to learn your value. 
somebody comes, they scoop you up, they attune to you, they empathetically connect to you, they decode your thrashing to, to try and figure out what it is that you need, and then they provide it for you. And if you call out to the world, and they come, and they connect to you, and they understand what you want, and they give it to you, what happens? You develop a sense of yourself as competent, capable, somebody desirable, somebody wanted. And what do you think of the rest of us? You think, they like me, they'll take care of me. So you, you develop a sense that I can take care of myself, and everybody's happy to take care of me. That's what happens. But what happens if that doesn't happen? You call out to the world, and the person who comes sometimes recognizes what you want, sometimes doesn't, sometimes doesn't come, sometimes hovers. What is the sense of self that you develop from that? And how do you experience the rest of the world? Or they don't come. And you call out, and they don't come, and you call out, and they don't come. What do you learn about yourself? What if they provide the very minimum, and it's not often the right thing? What do you learn about yourself and your skill of being in the world? And what do you think about all of the rest of us? Or they come and they slap you, or they shake you, or they punch you, or they punish you. What do you learn about yourself? What do you learn about the world? What do you learn about the rest of it in the world? So, secured attachment is, the, is the, the, the ideal category, and it runs outward from there. About how, what percentage of time do you think your caregiver would have to get it right? They'd have to show up, they'd have to attune to you, they'd have to empathetically connect to you, they'd have to understand what you're asking for, and then they would have to provide it to you. What percentage of time do you think they would have to get it right for you to grow up with this sense of, I'm capable? 70%? 60. 90. Um, so there's a couple of studies I'm aware of, and the range is between 30 and 50% of the time. So if we go with the low end, they have to get it right 30% of the time in order for you to grow up secure. Um, what would you say the chances are that secure people develop addictive strategies for coping? Less than 5%? Yeah, less than 5 In the most challenged end of attachment, what would you guess the rate of addiction is in that group? It's about 70%. So I just want you to, to begin to take in this. This is a, The idea is to remove blame from yourself. You grew up in an environment where less than 30% of the time your caregivers attended to you in a way that was helpful to you. So do you understand the challenges of growing up in an environment where less than 30% of the time your needs are being met when you're completely helpless and how that affects the way that you see yourself and how that affects the way that you see the world. Mm -hmm. That caregiving process, though, is that just in, like at infancy, or is that all the way up to like age five, or what, where is that thirty percent or whatever range? 
Um, I don't know that they categorize it in that way. Um, what the studies are based on is the 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 um, the strange situation at ten months old. They go into the home. There's no agency in a ten month old, right? You're entirely dependent on your your caregiver's response to you. Once you have some agency, then um, I'm thinking of my sister. When my sister was two and a half years old, she got on her tricycle and took off. Mm -hmm. um, seven hours later, the police brought her back, and when she got out of the back of the police car, she looked at me and said, I could have got away. <laughs> <laughs> What, what do you, what do you, what do you have to think about your life at home at two and a half to get on your tricycle and just take off? <laughs> I don't have any good childhood stories, so don't expect any. Oh yeah. So there you are. You make up your mind about yourself. You make up your mind about the world. It's, it's, it's present in you enough to be identified at 10 months. And by three years of age, it's pretty fixed because 80% of the brain is formed by then, right? You're born, your brainstem is intact. Your midbrain is partially formed and your prefrontal cortexes are hardly formed. They develop in response to the environment that you're in. So you actually grow the brain that you need to survive in the family system you're born into. And you take it with you when you go. And by three years old, it's 80% complete in the structuring of the brain. And depending on your attachment strategies, the, the physical structure of the brain is going to be different from other people. Something happens, you react to it in the way that you're conditioned. If the way you're currently set up is to regulate any overwhelming emotional experiences by using, you will think of using, and then the urging part comes in. Very hard. It's going to take a while to change that automatic response. The urging part is self-generated emotion where you think of something that regulates the underlying feeling state. And urging is about thinking about using or remembering using or planning your next run. In the beginning, most of the time, this is about self-soothing. So you understand, I can't use, I'm not going to use, I'm not planning to use, but thinking about the last great run I had actually makes me feel better. Or thinking about how great one glass of wine would be, who cares that it leads to 24 bottles. Um, <laughs> that one glass would be so great or whatever it is. I'll just have one itsy bitsy cookie. How did you learn to regulate? So you rush over to your caregiver, you lay there and you scream out and they scoop you up and they attune and they empathetically connect and they feel that you're feeling sadness. And so they say, oh, you're feeling sad. And then you know that the experience that you're having is called sadness. And then they say, here, have a cookie. And then you know the way to regulate sadness is by eating cookies, right? You learn all of this. 
Have you ever been to a restaurant and the kid is fussing and the bag comes out? Yeah. And one thing after another is waved in front of the kid, right? Distraction. I'm feeling this intense experience and the way that I regulate it is by distracting myself. Have you noticed our culture? <laughs> what is it? The main form of distraction is violence. You understand that? You watch something violent from a position of power and it gives you a sense of powerfulness which helps to <coughs> alleviate the sense of powerlessness. That's distracting. It takes you away. What is it that's so awful about the present moment that you can't inhabit it even for a few seconds? Right. That's a question. That's one of these perennial meditation questions. What is it? What is it that's so awful about the present moment that we can't be in it even for a few seconds? If you could answer that, of course, then you could be in the present moment and all of these other strategies would become irrelevant. And that's really one of the things that we want to be able to do. Something, uh-huh? Um, something that parents do a lot, uh, they did this when I was a kid and I see it among other parents um, nowadays, is when a child is hurt, they say, you're okay, you're okay. Um, so as a child, do you receive that as either I guess I'm okay or I guess my feelings don't matter? My experience. So if you watch a child fall down, they'll be surprised. They'll have a, a whole intense experience of sensing that's overwhelming. And then they'll look for their, to their caregiver for reassurance. So what the caregiver is doing in that moment is saying that you're okay. And then the child will know that they're okay and that they can come and attempt to regulate themselves. If, however, they're not really okay, in that moment after the, they've been reassured that they're okay, they still won't be able to regulate their emotional experience and then they'll cry out and then the parent will know that actually it's above and beyond a normal falling down. And so that they'll then be able to attune and respond. That would be a, a good way of it happening. But the child is always going to be looking to the caregiver for reassurance because the, the, the caregiver is still the one who's primarily responsible for emotionally regulating the child. And they're always looking for the cue. If you, uh, this is also about exploration largely. If a parent rushes over and says, oh my God, you're hurt, you're injured, they become overprotective and it dampens down the child's ability to explore. If they're indifferent, then the child knows that they have to do it all themselves and they'll stop looking toward the caregiver. But actually it's a more secure thing for a child to fall and be overwhelmed by the sensing experience and look to the caregiver for reassurance as to what to do. That makes sense. A secure child will, when they see a stranger, will run behind the, 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 the caregiver and peek out. And then look up for an indication whether the stranger is safe or not. If the parent indicates that the stranger is not safe, they won't go near them. If the parent indicates that the stranger is safe, they'll make a tentative journey over to explore and meet them. because all because of the, the decision-making process of the caregiver. Um, I was standing on the corner in San Francisco in front of the meditation center and there was a group of, they looked like teens in early 20s, men and women, they had some small kids. 
a, a three-year-old burst out of the crowd of them, ran over to me and hugged me around the legs. Sounds charming, doesn't it? It was terrible. It's a terrible thing to see. Because a three-year-old child who will run up to a complete stranger a third of the block away is desperate for anyone to help them. They're going up to complete strangers and asking for help. It took about ten minutes before the mother came over to collect the child. Would you let your three-year-old run half a block to a complete stranger and then not go and retrieve them for ten minutes? You can imagine the state of neglect that that child was experiencing. And yet, it seems perfectly charming if you don't know what a secure child is supposed to look like. Were you able to say anything to that mother? I didn't say anything. Um, I was very kind to the child, but I'm not... You can't intervene, I guess. nothing to do and yeah and you're always in danger of embarrassing the caregiver and the child suffering for it if there was some kind of um, overt physical activity toward the child I'll often go over and ask the adult if they need help I say uh, do you need help and the reaction is varied sometimes it's yes and sometimes it's I'm just overwhelmed, but it's calming for them. So, something happens, we react to it. If the emotional intensity exceeds our normal bandwidth and we think of using, then we're currently wired to use to regulate that experience and we need to intentionally redirect the mind towards some other strategy. What you'll notice is the thought of using happens and then we begin to think about using this is urging urging is is a problem why is that if for instance you could just think about using and that would bring relief from the distress of the present moment and it didn't lead to using then why not right think of the last great run um, trying to think of the last great run. Well, maybe not the last great run. Maybe somewhere <laughs> toward the beginning of using. <laughs> the end of my using, I would wake up, I would go to the fridge, I would open a beer, and I would drink it as I was walking to the bathroom, and then I would throw it up, and then I would walk back to the fridge, and I'd crack a second beer, and I'd drink it on the way to the bathroom, and I'd throw it up. And then on the way, I'd come back, I'd open the third beer, and then I would take a few sips and see whether I was going to have to throw that one up. And if I was, I would just walk to the bathroom and throw it up. I usually could keep the fourth one down. That was the end of my drinking. I had cirrhosis of the liver when I was 23. So I was a heavy drinker. I was also a daily drinker in fifth grade, so I had a run, but... I was also an opium addict in my in elementary school because my father was the, the prescribing doctor and it, it kept the kids calm. Oh, <laughs> did, did all the, your siblings have that? Yeah, we all had it. Actually, when I, I did, in treatment, I did the family tree and indicated who was alcoholic and it was 100% of the, the level that I was on were alcoholics. Mm-hmm. 
In pills. What was it? Straight opium and pills? It was uh, emperin with codeine. Remember emperin with codeine? Remember emperin? It was a big computer to uh, aspirin. I would come home from fifth grade, I'd make a vodka gimlet, sit down and relax. Uh, Those were, um, my dad said, here are the pills, take them as needed. Like I said, I don't have any good stories about childhood. The reason that urging is a problem is because urging takes you out of the present moment. Something happens in the present moment. It's a stressor. What's stress? Stress is everything. The reason why stress is everything is because we're biochemical. Our sensing experience happens through the addition of chemicals. You sense something and it changes the chemical balance. We have this mythical homeostatic point where everything is in perfect balance, perfect saturation levels, and every sensing experience knocks that off balance. So we're constantly swinging back and forth around this uh, mythic point of homeostasis. If uh, something happens and the the chemical response that increases the saturation of, of the body chemical soup, you're in the mind needs to regulate that to protect actually the physical structure of the brain. That's what's happening. You don't have a choice about emotionally regulating you. You only have a choice about how you do it. But you only have a choice of how you do it if you learn a strategy that then becomes embedded in um, procedural memory. You know the two kinds of memory you have? Procedural memory and autobiographical or chronological memory. Did everybody drive over here? And did you think about every move of driving or did you just sort of drive? Have you ever been able to drive yourself from one place to the other and not remember driving there? When you walked in here, did you have to indicate every muscle group to move or did you know how to just walk in? Walking in, that's procedural. You learn it through repetition over and over again. Cognitive or autobiographical memory is very different, and that, that's where you uh, understand concept and story and those things. That piece is affected by stress. The procedural memory is not. You have to get into the state of amnesia before procedural memory is affected. So the habit, the habit energy we like to call it, samskara, the, the ruts of which you conduct yourself, are the are the the main way uh, of regulating something happens you respond to it in an emotional intensity that exceeds your ordinary bandwidth and then the mind moves in to regulate it with a strategy that you're currently set up to regulate that experience with and if you think of using then that's how you're currently set up that's what you know and then the mind will begin that process of using and by thinking of using so either you're planning to use or you're, me- or you're remembering uh, a last run and that's pulled you out of the experience of the present moment where the stressor is. 
you're thinking about it, you're using your chronological memory to remember using or to plan to use. And you know that it's a fantasy that you're just indulging in because it makes you feel better. And you don't attend to the present moment, you don't attend to the stressor in the present moment, and it often has a tendency to become more stressful. The more stressful it becomes, the less cognitive ability you have. And if you're allowing yourself to plan, and the stress is continuing to accelerate because you're not attending to the cause of the stressor in the present moment, you will get to the point where you won't be able to tell the difference between self-soothing fantasy planning and an actual plan to use, and then you'll find yourself using, having not really intended to do it. Is that making sense? Does this sound like something you've ever done? (laughs) (laughs) So this is craving and urge. Very difficult to uproot the mind thinking of using, but you have to be relentless in preventing the mind from fantasizing about using. So if you notice that you're engaging in the fantasy of using, you need to know that you're headed in relapse direction. And in order to head away from relapse, Uh, direction, you need to understand that something has happened in the present moment that exceeds your normal capability of regulating it, and so you want to bring your own internal skill to regulate it. This is the redirect. You think of using, and the mind begins to urge, and you stop the urging, and you push in the direction of some other way of emotionally regulating yourself. The technique for that is going to be noting feeling states technique. Um, And we're going to do a little bit of noting feeling states technique now. Do uh, anybody here know noting feeling states technique? So noting feeling states technique is where you moment by moment contact the emotional experience in the body and see if you can identify which one it is. Some of you uh, are going to be using suppression as your main way of regulating emotion, so this is going to be very challenging for you. You're not going to have really much felt sense of emotion in the body at all. Um, And uh, you may have uh, experienced a sense of frustration doing it. Frustration, incidentally, is an emotion, so you'll be able to generate that for yourself. But most of the time, you experience emotion in the thought process and it's disconnected from the body. So really, if you find that you're not finding much embodied emotional experience, then think of this as an invitation, a request to now have that information. I like to tell a story uh, about a student of mine. He's, was, he's French-Lebanese. That, You'll see the importance of this later. Um, he came uh, to me and said that he was afraid, his wife uh, got pregnant and they were going to have their first baby and he, he, was, uh, he felt urgency because he didn't want to be the same unfeeling father for his child that he experienced. And he, he was aware that he had no real conscious awareness of any emotional experiences he had. Um, The noting feeling states technique is a very potent strategy for this. And so I said, just do the noting feeling states technique every waking moment, every (laughs) conscious moment. 
Remember when I said you have to push hard to get these things to change? So every waking moment, he was a Zen practitioner. This wasn't a problem for him. Two months, two and a half months in, he called me and said that he was completely discouraged. He had made no progress. He felt nothing. In fact, he was surprised at how little he felt that the doing the technique just pointed out to uh, him how unfeeling he was. And I said, just keep going. And uh, about three and a half months in, he called and said he'd had a spontaneous felt emotional experience in the body and that it was mind-blowing and that it changed everything. And about a month after that, he left a long string of uh, expletives in French on my voice, (laughs) which ended with, how do I turn this off? (laughs) So encouraging little Toto to run across the floor and pull the curtain back. Once you pull the curtain back, you can't unpull it back, but then what you have is a conscious awareness of all of these emotional experiences and then you have to develop the skill of regulating them consciously, which you've never had to do before. Some of you will notice that the mind is very quick to react with very strong emotion and very slow to settle. And so the, the noting feeling states is very good at connecting these parts of the brain that will help regulate that. Um, and then some of you will have uh, a sense that you're in constant danger and so there's a, 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 a lot of anxiety often, a lot of fear and you have a lot of suspicion about uh, other people's motivations toward you um, and so there's going to be also a lot of sadness in that so I just want to give you a heads up for this Um, I wish that I could say that this was easy to do, um, but actually um, I liken it to an earthquake and a tsunami following it. When you begin to push into these things, what you're going to notice is a very strong experience of abandonment, terror, and then a terrible sadness that's going to come. If you can ride through that, you'll come to this place of secure relationship It's totally worth doing it, but the experience of getting there is often challenging and difficult and unpleasant. I think that if it wasn't those three things, we would all have already done it. When we came out of our family system and recognized that the strategies that we have weren't really serving us that well, we would have changed them if we didn't have to bump up against this... uh, Earthquake and tsunami, I like to call them. So I'm going to leave a five minute window for QA. Any thoughts or questions about that?
So we could look at it. We'd, we'd have to do some more investigation, or you'd have to do some more investigation. Under earning is um, if it comes from a place of fear of success, then you're regulating abandonment terror by under earning. Um, if if you're coming from a place of uh, asking for what you need actually is frightening because you think that in asking for what you need you're inviting danger into your life then you don't ask and it results in under earnings um, one of them one of them would be a a, um, a response of a fearful avoidant person we're going to talk more about attachment in the afternoon but Fearful avoidant people think that if they ask for what they need that they'll be harmed. And so the way that they regulate that anxiety is by not asking, or they ask in riddles, or um, implicitly asking, but not really ever explicitly asking. Um, the way that fearful avoidant people tend to regulate their emotion is by isolating from other people. and so that need to regulate their emotion in that way uh, doesn't allow them to form the kind of social networks where they'll be able to make money. So that it's, it's really a, a strategy around a, emotional regulation. Could be fear of success. The closer you get to something that's successful, the more anxiety that it creates. And so you intentionally fail as a way of reducing the abandonment experience. It doesn't mean that there isn't a consequence to failing. You do feel the consequence of failing. But in the moment, if you... Anybody here want to argue with me that active addiction is painful? This is a level of pain, say, of active addiction. If you live your life down here, where this is the ordinary pain of being alive, this never looks good. But if you let the pain of living get up here, this looks good. You recognize that it will be self-destructive to do that, but in the moment when you need the relief from pain, you think that the self-destruction is worth it, and so you take it, and it relieves the pain a little bit. In fear of success, the anxiety is so painful of succeeding that the failure looks like relief in the moment, and then when you've re relieved the uh, anxiety of succeeding, you have to deal with the consequence of then of having failed again. And it, it doesn't look good at that moment, but you've relieved the stress, the abandonment terror of succeeding. And in that moment, you don't have a choice of regulating. You have to regulate. And if the way you're set up to regulate is fail, then you'll fail and, and you won't be able to prevent yourself from doing it. And then after you've failed, you'll come back into balance and you'll be able to recognize that, oh, fuck, I've done it again. But in the moment, you really didn't have any choice because the anxiety of succeeding was too great. Um, I'll talk more about that later. I wanted to know if uh, anybody had uh, um, difficulty doing the noting feeling states technique or what happens with that. Uh -huh. um, so when we were first in the mental mind state, I, I was in such a, a lovely state of mind that I was thinking, oh, there's no way that I'm going to feel anything different. 
So once we transferred to the feeling state, out of nowhere, uh, sadness came, and I felt it right here in my throat, and mm -hmm. I started to weep. And that was very interesting to watch that transition happen so quickly. Can you describe the physical sensation of the sadness? The physical sensation, I, I felt it primarily up here in my throat area, and I felt my throat closing, and then I proceeded to breathe through it. And then it, it started to head down, and I noticed it in my stomach, where it turned into an anxiety, a clenching of the stomach, and then that developed into feelings of fear, and it just happened so quickly. I found it very profound. Okay, good. So what we need to begin to do is develop really good sensory clarity around the kind of emotional experiences we're typical, and you've described them all in that, that's why I'm going to address it in this way. You have the response to the present moment, which plays out on the surface, face, front of the throat, front of the torso, down the arms, down the legs, here. That's the, the arena where you experience the present moment. You can think a thought, and that will also generate emotion in that same area. The reason why thinking is emotionally regulative is regulatory is if you have an experience of the present moment that's difficult and unpleasant, you can think of a thought that will drive an emotional experience that will completely displace that in the same arena. So it's like swapping out one emotional experience for another. You can drive the emotion through thinking and it will stay there as long as you're thinking the thought. The conditions of the present moment will change. The underlying feeling state that you're no longer aware of will come and go and then the mind can shut off the emotion that it's been driving and you'll come back into balance. That's that regulatory process. If that self-generated emotion becomes too intense, the body-mind will suppress it, and then you'll have that clenching energy of old emotion in the body, the somaticized emotion that then can relieve, release emotion. So if you're holding a lot of sadness, a lot of fear, a lot of anger in the body in these emotional centers, you, the present moment can be totally fine, and then you'll have a wave of terrible sadness that just is out of nowhere, can't explain why it's happening even. And if you don't have good clarity that, oh, that's the old stuff releasing in the background, you may think that the conditions of the present moment are the cause of the sadness, and then you'll begin to take an action in the present moment to relieve the sadness that is not caused by the present moment, and your, your actions will be askew, out of line, or a residence in the, in the somaticized emotional experience will turbocharge the, emotion, uh, the emotional experience of the present moment and you'll take an action totally out of proportion to the conditions of the present moment. Have you ever had the experience of people going, whoa, where did that come from? <laughs> that would be that old emotion turbocharging the present moment and then you act as if the present moment were the cause of it. Transference. Um, I don't know how you mean transference. Like in, in therapy, where you relate to oh. the therapist as if they Well, uh, transference is, in some sense, you project your uh, a cluster of feelings and identifications onto someone else. This I'm literally talking about the experience of emotion in the present moment. The pool releases a big wave of sadness and you think that the person you're talking to is causing you to be sad 
when actually it's just old stuff releasing in the background. It has nothing to do with the person that you're talking to. So then you begin to try and adjust them so that they won't make you sad. Uh, and uh, they wonder what the hell you're doing. <laughs> so um, I, I listened to your story about your uh, student, I guess, who practiced found resistance and then was overwhelmed. So does this practice to do what you're talking about require a certain level of stability to start with? Because I, specifically, I work down at Homeboy Industries. Right. And we do meditation there just to set the scene. Like three of the people that are in that meditation are in wheelchairs and been shot in the head. This is hardcore stuff. And, you know, the, frankly, the meditations are pretty raw. <laughs> You know, the sessions that we have down there right. are pretty raw. And I'm wondering about introducing this kind of practice when people are coming in there with very, very raw experiences. I would probably modify it and do noting positive feeling states only to begin with. Uh-huh. Right. So you're yeah. sensitizing them only to the positive, and once they have a good grip of the positive, then they can go in. Which is sort of what we end up doing, actually. Yeah. Oh, oh, good. And also the metta. Start yeah, there. That we do that too. Thanks. Good. Is there the same principle somatic therapy is based on? Yeah. Not yet, but we will get there. <laughs> we will get there. The, the third module is called persistent negative emotion, which is which is really around that somaticized emotional experience. This is we're still looking at the present moment. That happens, and then the mind moves to regulate it. Uh-huh. How frequently do you suggest doing this? I would suggest that you do it every waking moment. <laughs> now, there's a just a constant state of low to medium level anxiety. It's it like I almost like I almost uh, just get uh, bored. Well, not bored, but like it's sort of just it's so expected that it's like well, it's it's more of an event when there isn't anxiety. Mm-hmm. So then. So what's useful then is, is, is to, to modify the technique slightly and notice each individual wave. Anxiety is a word that normally makes me think of self-generated emotion rather than fear of the present moment, so that you may notice that the mind is generating all of that anxiety and you can easily stop it by preventing the thought, and then you'll have an intensification of the underlying feeling state that actually is the thing that the anxiety is regulating. So you move out of thinking into the experience of the present moment, and then you'll find that it's really varied. You described an ongoing, constant experience, which is self-generated. The only kind of emotional experience that's like that is the one that comes from thinking. So you're likely using a kind of catastrophizing uh, thought process that constantly generates anxiety to mask the experience of the present moment. So you want to get into the underlying feeling state so that you can actually see what the, what your responses are to the experience. All right, let's take a 10-minute break and come back at quarter of 11. <laughs>